You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. My next guest is arguably, actually not arguably, he is the best commodity analyst and commentator in South Africa and maybe beyond as well. And maybe (laughs) I'm a little bit biased because he's a friend of mine and has been for a long time. Anyway, his name is Peter Major. He's Mergence Corporate Solutions Director of Mining. And he started an article with the following paragraph, the one he recently sent me. He said, Alan Greenspan, already famous for playing the saxophone, working for Ayn Rand, in his first job out of university and becoming U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman in 1987, coined the phrase irrational exuberance in his now famous speech of the 5th of December 1996. I won't go over the next few paragraphs because it, it does become a little bit rambling because we want to get to the meat of the issue here. Is there irrational exuberance in the commodity cycle? And indeed, <coughs> is it a super cycle? Is the super cycle taking a pause or will it become even more super? A super cycle with me now is Peter Major. How long has this cycle been going on, Peter? I would say at least 18 years, Lindsay, easily. 18 years. It's, it started after falling for about 20 years. If you say 1980-81 was the peak of the previous commodity cycle, and that was the most well-known one, the one in the 70s, this one began in about 2002-2003. So you had 23 years of falling and flat and low commodity prices from 1981 right until 2003. And now we can say we've had 18 years of almost constantly rising, pumping commodity prices. So it's, it is a long, big cycle, bigger than I think any commodity cycle in the world has ever been in a thousand years. Yes, and of course, there are commodities and there are commodities. I mean, I look at my CLB index every morning. That's the Commodity Research Bureau index. And there are dozens and dozens of these things. They don't all go up in a synchronized fashion. But you've got your energy complex, your precious metals, including platinum group metals. You've got bulk commodities like iron ore and coal. You've got base metals, you know, copper, lead, tin, zinc, nickel, rare metals, which have have come to the fore because of cell phone technology. You've got agriculturals, you've got soft commodities like cocoa, coffee and sugar. And so it goes on. But generally, the trend has been up. I think the CRB index is up at something like 28% just this year to date. Some lead and some lag for a while, but generally commodity prices are going up. They're going up and they're staying up. And you're right. We're mostly talking metals. We're mostly talking what's mined. Uh, we're kind of leaving off oil and natural gas, and oil is down from the crazy heights, you know, when it was $100 plus back in, was it 207, 208? But still, you know, oil at 70, $75 a barrel when I think its long-term average is 50, and these natural gas prices, geez, they haven't been this high more than a couple times in the last 15 years. But metals per se incredibly well you know iron ore pumping as high as 220 230 for weeks maybe a month or two on end and we know gold and platinum did well platinum actually didn't do very much but Mm. boy palladium rhodium when you've got metals trading not at multiples of their long-term average some of these metals traded at a multiple of their all-time previous high if that isn't a super cycle you tell me what is. 
what you've always said to me when we've, whenever we've spoken about gold, you'll say, Lindsay, it's $1,900 an ounce at the moment, or where I think when we last spoke, it was, uh, it was above 2000 You say, Lindsay, will always revert to its long-term average. And in your graph, in your piece, it says here, uh, gold's 150-year average is $625 an ounce. And here we are. It's, I, think it went, I think it went to $2,075 an ounce last year. I think it was. And, then, yeah. and now here so, we are. We had a flash crash this week, and it's just above 1700 dollars in us so we've got a way to go until it gets back to 625 but you've always said that and I, I suppose you still stick by that story look it's hard not to and i know gold can be called a very different metal than the rest because they call it a monetary instrument a store of value and and i do buy quite a bit of that agreement so right now that's how do how else do we justify it trading at more than double its long-term average but a lot of these other metals are trading at double their long-term average. I don't think any of them are going to stay at double their long-term average. You know, gravity is relentless. Gravity is everlasting. It'll outlast us all, and it doesn't get any weaker or stronger with time. So these things will come back down to their mean. But are they going to come down tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? And I think a bigger question is, how are they going to come down? Because when we've had previous commodity runs, we've had many runs, smaller runs from 1981 until literally recently. Yeah. And these, these smaller runs, they seem to revert quite quickly. You have big falls rapidly, down in days, maybe a few weeks. But maybe because this commodity run has gone on for 18 years – and as you've pointed out, Lindsay, it's, it's mixed. There's some commodities that aren't trading at multiples of their long-term average. There's some that are barely trading at their average. So maybe this commodity cycle is going to gradually dissipate rather than just have a big break and everything fall. And I'm starting to lean towards that that train of thought that, yeah, we've seen iron ores down from 230. It's down to 165 now. And, and oil's down from 75 to maybe 70. And, and gold, yeah, it's not 2075. Now it's 1730. So maybe that's what we're going to see. It's just a gradual dissipation of the robustness of this run. And so, and, and I would like that. I think the world would like that. Then people don't get shocked and businesses just shut down mines just go from making hundreds of millions of profit to hundreds of millions of losses and that's what happened in the early 80s a lot of mines just they got wiped out in previous runs we've seen businesses get wiped out but if it's gradual labor and other suppliers they can adjust you're not just a person that looks at macroeconomics and has a look at a graph and has a look at a whole bunch of statistics. You're a person that goes out to mines, particularly in Africa and, and notably in South Africa, so you know what's going on. South Africa may be not a good example because it doesn't exactly open its doors to exploitation of new reserves um, because of uh, bureaucracy, red tape, and all sorts of other political issues. But are you seeing worldwide people starting to say, wait a second, iron ore at 220, even though it's in two, sorry, 165 this morning are you seeing people starting to get interested and let me ask another question as well as part of that question if you were jeff bezos and uh, you got fed up with delivering people products and going into space and you said right i want to get into commodities now what sort of mine would you develop where is the future of making money in commodities which particular sector that's that's the second question the first was are there new mines opening or in the future will there be in south africa there are very few mines opening 
And there's very many good reasons for that. There's 240 countries in the world. I doubt it's harder to open a mine in another country than South Africa. Maybe we're not number 240. Maybe we're number 235. But it's actually easier to open a mine in Afghanistan or North Korea. Afghanistan, you make a deal with the Taliban. You pay your 10 or 15 percent tithe. They will protect you. They will make sure nobody messes with you on that mine. North Korea, the same story. In this country, not only is there not protection, there's almost extortion, Lindsay. You know, and it's mandated extortion. In most countries, extortion is illegal. It still happens, but at least it's a little bit under the table. It's illegal. But it's virtually been legislated here. It's mandated. So when an investor comes here and he gets off the plane, before he even gets through the ticket counter at Oliver Tambo Airport, he has to turn over his wallet, and they remove 30% of the money in his wallet, and they give him the 70% back, and they say, there, you now have your BE partner for your first new mine. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. You know, you've now got 70% equity, but you paid for 100%. But now a mine has to get supplies. It has to buy equipment, cement, steel, explosives. Well, there's a scorecard, and they tell you who you're going to buy from, and you don't have too much choice, and you're going to pay whatever the price is because you have to have 70% of your purchases also from cadre deployment. Also from BE. And so it goes on. Like Even that. if it's a more expensive, and, Peter. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. I mean, BE is one thing, and you have to hand over a certain, it, uh, a certain amount of money. Thing. It's a contentious issue, but uh, I think generally people say, yes, it was a great idea, but. But even if that mine, well, mine's profitability is going to be um, impinged upon by the fact that what he's buying, what, what the mine is buying, rather, is more expensive from the BE partner than elsewhere, that's still the rules. You have to go to an accredited supplier. Look, it might be a great idea for the recipient. So it depends who's calling it a great idea. You know, it's not a great idea for the payer. It's not a great idea for the operator. And unfortunately, when they put in that new MPRDA, they had to take something completely out of the equation and burn it and bury it. And that was called meritocracy. So there's no meritocracy. You can't hire who you want. You can't fire who you want. And all the workers know it. They've been brainwashed. You hire a guy, he's there for life. Whatever he does, he's there for life. And so there's no meritocracy anymore. Unfortunately, there is huge, enormous racism here. And we haven't even got on to ESCOM and Transnet. So our R&R producers, they can't get the material to the harbor. The harbors haven't been expanded, what, maybe a decade or more? And so because it's state-controlled, that means it's cadre-controlled, cadre-crony-controlled. And we know... That leads to nepotism, inefficiency, high cost, unreliability. So why would you start a mine here? You can't transport your product. Eskom is unreliable and high-priced. It's only going to get more unreliable and more high-priced. Unfortunately, there's a plethora of reasons not to start a mine here, and so people aren't starting mines here. The existing mines have a big edge. Government has protected them with all of this inadvertently, so they don't have to expand and they're not willing to expand. They'd rather pay excess dividends out, get the cash out while the going is good. So it's not leading to the growth in our mining industry here, which is sad because we still have more minerals, economic minerals, than Russia and America put together. And we've got 10, 15 million people unemployed who most of them do want to work. 
So our policies do have to change, just like all the economists say. Until our policies change, we can't start growing employment. Is President Ramaphosa and his minerals and resources minister, are they both going in the right direction or are they still stalling and still fudging? They're trying to work with horrible policies and bad legislation. And they've been working with that now for 20 years. And it's not working. You know, the ship is sinking faster than these rudimentary pumps that they supposedly are putting in place to bail out. The ship is going deeper and deeper underwater. And only a radical, dramatic change in policy and legislation has a chance, like with global warming, only if we make radical, strong changes right now do we have a chance of slowing down let alone stopping global warming. And, and that's about all South Africa is with its policies. The bad ones have been in place. The culture inculcated is so entrenched. It's in everyone's chromosomes and DNA here that this is how economics and business works, that only a rapid, concerted, solid, hard, well-backed effort to change the policies and legislation has a chance of saving the country. But on the other hand, Kumba Iron Ore and Platinum Group metal producers in the Republic of South Africa are printing money. But as you say, they're paying out dividends in order to say, well, let's make hay while the sun shines and, and get as much out as, as, as we can. But they are doing very well at the moment, you'll agree, the existing mines. They're doing superbly well. Uh, the big boat producers could do much better. You know, All of our iron ore producers could be doing much better because they could be sending out more iron ore. But because the infrastructure is broken down and not being repaired, they can't send out the tons that they would like to send out. So why expand your mine if you can't get the tons out? Now, platinum's a little bit different. You can air freight most of that final product out. But there's no expansion going on like we've seen in previous commodity booms. This, this run is different, especially for South Africa because almost no one wants to increase production. They don't want to spend that money on CAPEX because they know when these commodity prices go down, they have excess capacity, and that money would be better spent as dividends, giving it back to shareholders and let them diversify. We all know Warren Buffett's famous, what's he say? Diversification is the only free lunch you get. Yeah. And so... Our producers know that. So even if you're a platinum mine, you're producing PGMs, diversify it, whether it's just in another platinum mine, whether it's in another country, whether it's in some kind of subsidiary business, but don't have all your eggs in one basket because this commodity boom will end and this relentless bad policy, ESCOM, Transnet, um, Union, irate communities, you know, that environment is ever growing. It's all around you. So yeah, diversify some of that cash you're making for a rainy day. You, I think you must have been um, consulting to Neil Froneman of Sibania because uh, he did exactly <laughs> the same thing with, with Stillwater. He did exactly what you've just said uh, to great effect, I think. Geez, he did, Lindsay, and he did before the commodity boom. So you can bet, you know, that was risky. It was hell of a risky and he made it. You know, he took out that huge leverage. He got his timing perfect on PGMs. How much was planned? How much was inadvertent? There's no way he could have planned for these kind of PGM prices. But beautiful strategy, well executed. And you bet, you know, and, and look where those profits are going. 
You know, they're paying off high price debt. They're going into diversified industries that are all out of the country. And unfortunately, not much of that money is going into extending the life of the deep level gold mines. So we all know still South Africa still possesses almost half the world's known gold. We all know none of our gold mines are out of gold, but they're old and tired. They haven't had any new shafts or capex put into them for decades. And we have to ask ourselves why. When this country was producing 60-70% of the world's gold, when this country was sinking umpteen new shafts every year, why has that changed 180 degrees the last 20 years? Well, that was 50 years ago. I think uh, South Africa produced over 1,000 tonnes of gold in 1970, Peter. You're a better commodity historian than I am. Uh, but ever since then, Spot it's on. been in decline, I think. I don't it know. We're number six decline. or seven now, I think. No, no, we're, we're nine heading towards 10th. I don't think we produce 80 tons of gold a year anymore. Gosh. It's, it's, it's sickening. It's, it's devastating. All these unemployed people, all these unused shafts, all these developed ore bodies that the shafts have been filled in, the head frames knocked down. I've never seen a mine that ran out of ore. I'm sure there's one somewhere on the planet, but I never saw one. And most of our gold mines had multiple reefs. And with these kind of gold prices, all those reefs would have been viable. We've got South Deep, but that doesn't seem to get anywhere, does it? Because it's four kilometres underground. So maybe it's just not practical. Maybe it's too expensive. Maybe the gold price needs to be $3,000 an ounce and the round of 20 to the US dollar in order to make it viable. What's your explanation to this massive, massive deposit that hasn't efficiently been exploited yet? My explanation is bad cost control. Mining is all about cost control, Lindsay. And if you can't control your costs, you get devoured. Any business, cost control is paramount. South Africa had fantastic cost control. The gold mines here in their heyday were sourcing 90 to 95% of everything they needed locally. Literally, we could build anything in this country. So the gold mines were self-sufficient and that allowed them to have low costs. You know, Anglo-American was using so much steel on their gold mines. They created Heifeld steel and vanadium. And that way, you know, instead of paying hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in buying steel from Iscor or importing it, they said, let's keep it in the house, keep it in the family. And so all of our mines were so self-sufficient, everything they bought, and that allowed your costs to be under control. And also the pay scales. We're much more related to meritocracy and productivity, whereas now a lot of that has gone completely out. And we can we can give a legislation and policy a lot of the credit for that. So you don't have cost control when there's no meritocracy. When people aren't getting paid for productivity, you're not having cost control. And that applies to all of our mines, but especially the deep level gold mines. You need rigid cost control, and you need to know you're not going to be messed with for the next 10 or 20 years to put the proper procedures, protocols, and businesses in place. But when you're being shut down for Section 54 infringements, and you don't know who or why, and a lot of it has been politically motivated, a lot of it was tit for tat, just people aren't going to invest for the long term under that environment. So what you're saying is cost control is key. In other words, let's say you opened a, a silver mine, for example, and the silver price is $20 an ounce. If you have enough cost control in place and you plan forward and your legislative 
infrastructure is relatively easy to navigate, it can come down to 12 to $15 an ounce, and you're cushioned by the fact that you've controlled your costs and you know what is in store in the future. In other words, it's not like um, a China tech company where it doesn't know when the government is going to say, well, you can't do this now, uh, despite the fact that when you set up the company, you could. You see where I'm going with this? No, I do, Lindsay, and you, you are spot on. A good mine manager can cover his costs at any metal price. And that's why I went into mining. I said, as low as these prices go, I know I can at least cover my costs. And so maybe some of the other guys can't, but that will allow the metal price to go up. They will go out of business. And, and we saw it in this country. We had low metal prices pretty much all through the 90s. And yet I remember on the JSE, we had something like 110 listed mining companies. Virtually every one of them was paying a dividend of some kind throughout almost all the 90s. And we were putting the rest of the world out of business. So across the spectrum, coal, uranium, gold, base metals, iron ore, manganese, chrome, we were still making money and paying dividends and had healthy balance sheets because we had good cost control all through the 90s. And, and that is the key. As you say, with new technologies, look at Mark Kudafani at Anglos is bragging up. He's got 50% more production than he did when he started, and he's doing it with 25% less people. And he's trying to distinguish Anglo-American as the most high-tech mining company on the planet. He's using ore sorters and all kinds of new technology to take him down the cost curve. And what happens when you're taking yourself down the cost curve and you get these abnormal high money quantity prices – you get super profits, like our mining companies have been getting, super profits, because your margins are now so gigantic. There's a, a mining conference in South Africa called uh, the Mining in Darwin. I think it's February of every year at the Cape Town International Convention Centre. There's one in Australia called uh, Diggers and Dealers. I would, I, would, I would characterize you, Peter Major, as a digger rather than a dealer. You did do a little bit of dealing, but uh, you're, not, you're not a trader. You're a person that likes to get out there and uh, go below the surface and find out what's going on, not at the coalface, but below the coalface. What would you be doing now if you were a dealer, though, if you were a trader, if you were a broker, if you were an investor? What sector would you be looking at, given that iron ore has fallen from 220 to 165, given that gold has fallen from 2,000 plus to just, just above 1,700? Where do you go? It, Lindsay, as an investor, you have to keep one eye on the commodity prices. You can't forecast them, but you at least want to have an idea. Where am I on the trend and where does the trend look like it's going? So as an investor, I would say most of these commodity prices have had a heck of a good run. So if I'm going to buy a mining company now, I want to know – what can it do to maintain its profits if the commodity price slides further? Now, Harry Oppenheimer had an answer for that. He called it expansion. So he would tell you, I've got this gold mine, and gold is stuck at $35 an ounce for 40 years. So how am I going to increase my profits? Well, I'm going to use technology. I'm going to get more efficiency out of my labor. I'm going to get them more productive using better labor management methods. I'm going to open additional levels in the same mine. I might sink another shaft and have a sister mine. So there will be expansion. Oh, maybe there's a new reef that has a higher grade. So, yeah, I would be looking for a mining company that has three or four logical ways 
of increasing the profits if commodities stay flat or even if they fall down a bit. Because if, if it's just a fixed uh, production, then it's just totally dependent on the commodity price. You know, if they say this mine is designed for half a million ounces a year, that means if the commodity price comes down, you're going to lose proportionally that much revenue. Your profit's going to fall accordingly. But if you say this gold mine produces half a million ounces a year, but we've got low-cost expansion going on, it's going to lower our overall cost, it's going to increase our production, that will counter the falling commodity price quite a bit. So, And that applies to all commodity producers, not just precious metals. So that's what I'd look at if I'm an investor. Yeah, where am I going to get a, a good margin that can sustain a falling price and there's a production profile that's going to lower the cost of production and increase the amount produced? Maybe this current little dip this little downturn, which saw the CLB go from 236 to 225 a couple of days ago, back at 228, 229. Now, whatever, the semantics need not, detain, need not detain us. Maybe it's because it's August. Maybe it's because all the commodity traders are on an island somewhere, uh, reaping the benefits of their, of their dividends and so forth. Um, maybe it's because the Chinese are trying to slow down the rise in commodity prices. Or maybe it's because, as Goldman Sachs is predicting, that uh, GDP in China will come down as well and their demand will not fall off a cliff, but certainly be reined in. Maybe it's that. What do you think it is? And is it just I, a moment in time or is, it, is this a trend now being established? I think you're spot on. I think it's your GDP, your declining GDP trend. I think all these countries have had too high a growth since the lockdown of the, the first virus scare, you know, early last year. And most of these countries have been growing stronger and longer than most of us thought they could. So when the virus hit, we said, well, that's a convenient end for the super cycle, not just for commodities, for everything. And yet the way they bounced up and they've just been increasing rapidly ever since that initial drop back in March last year, Okay, a lot of it has probably been attributed to the world virtually doubling its monetary base. You know, geez, we see countries competing with each other. How many billions of stimulus can we throw at it? So that's definitely given legs to this recent run. But I'm with you, Lindsay. I just think GDP must be getting a little bit tired in most of the world now, even with all that, that drug-induced fiscal expansion. Mm. Um yeah, that's what I think. And, and and can people keep using the huge amounts of iron ore, the huge amounts of copper or aluminum? They can't. If the GDP is slowing down, they're not going to need those huge amounts. And so from metals to lumber prices to even agricultural, it's, it's inevitable. Huh? Gravity's there all the time. It's pulling these things down. GDP, you know, it's all, all these countries are on GDPs much higher than their their average, other than probably China, and that just grew at, what, double digits for 30 years. So it's also in a bit of a sine wave. It's got to taper off a little more, I would think. Peter Major, thank you very much for your insight. As always, fascinating stuff. Peter Major is Mergent's Corporate Solutions Director of Mining in Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position 
or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.